Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Welcome back to The Bill Walton Show. We're going through a little pre-show routine and as you can see, our new format has me here with two computers and I have two wonderful guests and we're now learning to talk into the computer uh, with the little green light. So we're looking in the viewer's eyes and Ralph is, uh, Ralph Binko, who's one of old friend, one of my guests is training another old friend, John Tamney, who's used to working in regular studios on, on how to do this. And Ralph has John staring into the green light. And now one of Ralph's attributes that not many people know is he's been named as one of the top 100 hypnotists in the world. What's that? And he's saying to John, John, would you tell, would you tell John to look into his green light, Ralph, and practice some of your hypnotic magic? Think of the great Gatsby and gaze into the green light at the end of your dock. <laughs> I just can't stop. John Tamney and, and it will appear John. that you're looking at the camera, <laughs> away from the camera. If I can't look at myself, I don't want to do this. <laughs> John, there's only room for one narcissist in this relationship, and I claim that first. Oh, my. This could be a threesome. Uh, so <laughs> so let's, let's get into what we want to talk about today. One of the things of, of, uh, about economics that I think people don't understand is that economics is really about people. It's not about plants and equipment. It's not about tax rates necessarily. It's not about uh, all the things you read about in the paper. It's not about GDP. It's not about aggregate macroeconomic monetary policy, on and on and on. It's really about people and about how people are participating in a system that based on incentives that uh, rewards work and rewards a, uh, uh, a lot of good things that we all want. And what I wanna dive into today is a very interesting idea that Ralph Binko uh, came up with when he was writing on something he calls, and I call human capital, and he calls it Tamney's axiom. And it's in honor of John Tamney, uh, who's with us as, as a frequent guest and friend. John authored uh, The End of Work, which is, you can find on Amazon, terrific book about the future of the workplace and, and your role in that workplace. And he's also the uh, um, director, head up, heads up the Center for Economic Freedom at FreedomWorks. Ralph, who you know, uh, probably needs some introduction, but I'll give him one anyway. Web, he's written the Webster's Dictionary, which is the, uh, the guide to use the web to transform uh, what are we transforming, Ralph? We're transforming. How do, you, how do you use the web to transform the world? And this applies both to commercial enterprises to build market share and to convert uh, leads into clients, but it also has to do with advocacy uh, in terms of uh, ideas and working in the political and policy sector. And Ralph also, Ralph works, also works with clients at ralphbinko.com where he helps people get their messages out. He's a terrific writer, copywriter, and uh, I, I urge you to avail yourself of his services because he can help you, um, help you be successful. So Ralph, let's start with you. Talk about what Tamney's axiom is. Well, the, uh, the purest version is talent trumps. The original version that I used in my article drawn from his article, uh, my article in the, in the conservative review, was talent trumps taxes. 
because look, I'm an old guard supply sider. I was one of, I was a junior member of the team that dropped the top marginal tax rate from 70% to 28%. So I'm a, I'm a true believer. I watched uh, Kemp formulate this under the uh, guidance of, uh, of uh, Nobel Prize winning laureate Bob Bundell and his colleague Garnt Laffer. Um, and I, you know, helped by forming the Prosperity Caucus into, into helping to turn it from heresy into conventional wisdom. I watched it raise the, the Dow Jones Industrial Average from 814, 814, on the day that Reagan declared for the presidency in November 1979 to over 25,000 today. I watched this, this policy formulation raise the world GDP from $11 trillion to $83 trillion as this formula was adopted by the world. So I'm no, I'm no, I'm no uh, slouch when it comes to being uh, a low tax guy. That said, uh, I don't, I, uh, I, I believe that the Republican party has turned into what I call cold war reenactors. They're kind of like civil war reenactors <laughs> they are busily trying to refight the, the fights of the eighties in the, in the, in the late seventies, we had a misery index that was up around 20%, which was a combination of inflation plus unemployment. We have a different situation now. And John, in one of his columns at Forbes, Dot com made a, a really, really important observation about how two of the most heavily taxed places on the planet are two of the wealthiest ones, and that is Manhattan and Silicon Valley. And they are subject to what John likes to call nosebleed tax rates. Forgive me for stealing your uh, line, John, but it's a great one. And good artists borrow great artists steal, and I think of myself as a great artist. So he looked at this conundrum, and it was like, how come we supply, let's, let, let's be honest among ourselves, we supply-siders, how come with the highest tax rates in the country and maybe the world, these are two of the most prosperous places in the world? And he said, I, I think I'm quoting from you here, John, not just paraphrasing, talent trumps taxis. And this plugs right into the Nobel Prize winning work of Gary Becker and Ted Schultz called Human Capitalism, which is to say that uh, innovation, human, the human mind is the, is the engine of prosperity. And I think that John has triggered something that is terribly important for the future so that we're not just doing reruns of the 80, of 80s policy. Yes, it's good good to keep taxes down. Yes, it's good to cut spending. John's made the point that spending is the true tax rate, federal government spending. Having a stable dollar, preferably defined by a fixed weight of gold, is the optimal monetary policy. But at the bottom of things, it's just as you said, John, it's, it's people, it's the human mind that is the, uh, is the ultimate uh, uh, engine of wealth, human innovation, and uh, I think it's important that we adopt and celebrate Tamney's axiom, talent trumps taxes as the compass to take us forward policy-wise and to make America great again. John, 
Yeah, uh, let, thank you very much, Ralph and, and Bill. And let me let me uh, say in my case that I am a supply sider. I believe it's a tautology. I wrote a book, Popular Economics, saying that uh, economic growth is a function of re reducing the barriers to production, tax, regulatory, trade tariffs, and unstable money. Um, my, but my dispute with supply siders in modern times is I think that they have made what is a great argument ridiculous. Let me be clear. I'm for tax cuts no matter what. I'd be for tax cuts even if it were proven that they led to slower growth simply because I'm for freedom. And so when supply siders make it an outcome-based argument, they kind of defeat the purpose. Because if we're going to make it about outcomes, Ralph alluded to it already, uh, California and New York have, are the highest tax states in the U.S. They're the, all, also the richest states. 50% of all of global venture capital flows to California. Now, to, according to the supply side model, that wouldn't be true. It'd be flowing to Tennessee. It'd be flowing to Orlando, Florida, because there's no tax rates. But what we see is that money ultimately goes to where it's treated best. We all know that from Walter Riston. And we know that it's treated best when it's matched with the greatest talent. And I think the problem, one of the major problems with supply side today in making a tax-based argument, they set themselves up for easy rebuttal. Okay, so Tennessee's booming because of its zero tax rate. Well, have you driven through Nashville, uh, Memphis recently? Because that looks nothing like New York City, it looks nothing like San Francisco, it looks nothing like Los Angeles where the taxes are rather high. Uh, Jack Kemp, a hero of all of ours, I, I think I can speak for all of us, um, he oversaw wonderful tax cuts. He quarterbacked those tax cuts. But it didn't change the fact that tax rates are theoretically, because there's no city tax, lower in Buffalo than they are in New York City. Yet Buffalo is still a monument to an economy of the past, kind of a failed economy, whereas New York City, where taxes are highest, are booming. And so I think we've got to rethink our argument. So, so what's keeping people in New York? What's keeping people in Silicon Valley? I have a theory. My theory is people like to be around other people who are pursuing the same things they're pursuing. And, you know, what is it? Michael Jensen came of Harvard, came up with this idea of talent clusters where, where people in, in, in industries would want to be together because they could learn from each other. And his example of that, his, his early example of that was Italy in the 1600s or 1700s where the Italy dominated metalworking throughout Europe and all the great metalworking came out of uh, came out of northern Italy and we see that in California you've got Silicon Valley in the north and you've got Hollywood and Los Angeles if you want to be in the film business and I was in that for a while quite an experience you really got to be in Los Angeles because that's where all the people you know that's where you get to sit in the poker games on Thursday night and get to know how the movie deals are getting made and you can be part of that. But if you're not there, you're not really in the game. Theory, idea, what do you guys think? Um, I, I think you hit on it exactly. Uh, you talk about talent clusters. Um, uh, Enrico Moretti at Cal Berkeley made the same argument that people want to be around like-minded people. And so California in the North has a history of technological advances. To your point about the movie business, we can talk about the beauty. Sorry, but you're not going to move to Baltimore just because they lowered the rate to zero, assuming they did. You're not going to move to Memphis to start your technology company just because they moved to zero because you would not have the talent around you yeah. to make the business great. <laughs> and so, 
If, right. I, if I can take it off of you, you uh, brainiacs and your <laughs> academics, okay? Vince Cerf, who was the co-inventor of the internet with Bob Kahn, uh, gave a speech in which he mapped out exactly how this started in Silicon Valley, how Silicon Valley began in its very earliest day, and it was a guy. Uh, I, I'll find the article for you, uh, gentlemen, if, if uh, uh, Bill, if you want to post it. It yeah, was. I think I do. Watch you. Let's send it along. We'll we have to accept. Ask Maureen to send me an email because I've got the attention span of a goldfish, but. I will send it to you. And there was one man who said, we need to attract talent. And he systematically went around doing that. And then it compounded, it cascaded, and the talent attracted more talent and more talent. And this is documented not as, a, uh, not as an academic theory, but this is documented specifically in the words and in the experience as, um, as attested to by Vince Cerf, the co-inventor of the internet. This is exactly what happened. So not only is it true in theory, it's true in practice. Well, describe what he said happened. It was a, 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 a one person, two person, 12 people. 50 one guy people. said, we need, to, we need to attract talented people into yeah. this industry. And he went around recruiting them, hiring them, bringing them in, providing the resources to attract them. And then it found... It, and then they, in turn, their existence, just as you said, Bill, attracted other bright people who wanted to work in this sector, and they wanted to be around the other, the best and the brightest, because they aspired to become the best and the brightest. And they realized that the only way they could become that was exactly what you said, Bill, by being there. And then this continued to grow and grow and grow. And, and then it became the sort of uh, uh, high-tech capital of the world. And it continues to grow. And as high tech evolves from it, it evolved from uh, silicon wafers, computer chips, to software, and now it's evolving to blockchain and evolving to uh, evolving to advanced materials processes and so forth. And so it just it becomes a virtuous circle. But the but just to keep it really on point, it's Tammy's axiom. <laughs> Ellen, no, we we need to it the, you know. I can't tell you how few people understood the Laffer curve, but mouthed the phrase. And they, they didn't really understand that it meant cutting marginal tax rates. They thought it was tax cuts, but you need that fulcrum on your lever. And what really drove the supply side revolution was the phrase that Jude Winiski came up with, the Laffer curve, which helped people talk about it. And instead of all of these, you know, extended erudite, explanations we need two words tammy's axiom talent trumps to repeat them over and over and over again so that people can start will then start to adapt their policy prescriptions in light of the axiom because everything else comes derives from a gra a proper grasp of the axiom we've lost that grasp and john has made an intellectual breakthrough that gives us the hope of regaining it, in my opinion. Well, let's, let's, let's break this down, though. You wrote this in 2015, and that was before Donald Trump was president. Should you choose another verb besides talent, Trump's taxes, Trump, talent? Probably. <laughs> let's work on, let's, let's wordsmith that. Now a showstopper, so let's have <laughs> listeners uh, write in and come up with a nice, or let's get up, 
let's get out Roger's thesaurus and find out a good uh, we'll work on it. We'll synonym for Trump that is not politicized. John, you got to jump in. Yeah, well, you, and, and you, you see it everywhere. Let's not forget, we all know that Seattle was at one time Detroit in the 1970s. And it wasn't a tax rate that changed it. State of Washington all that time had a zero tax rate, but it wasn't some lure for the talented. What happened was Bill Gates happened to be born there. So did Paul Allen. They bring micro-soft back from Albuquerque, New Mexico, and they transform a city. And so I think the mistake is, I, I won't name his name. He's not, a, 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 several years ago, there was an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal saying Baltimore's problem is tax rates. And I thought, are you kidding me? No, Baltimore's problem is talented people have left. And as evidenced by the fact that they cluster in New York and California, taxes aren't everything to them. And when we make our argument about just taxes, we kind of look ridiculous because if, if we have a clue, we can say, well, why are all these people in these places where taxes are high? We've got to talk about talent. Is Talent is what saves Seattle, not a tax rate. And talent is what has California and New York soaring today, despite a high tax rate. So let's say you're mayor of Baltimore. God help you. Uh, and you got to deal with Baltimore's problems. Is there a way to attract talent except by having low taxes? Can we do something like Ralph suggests, which is, a bright guy that you know starts bringing in friends and they create an industry or create a business and I'll then tell you, I'll tell you a story that I might be apocryphal but I believe it to be true yeah. and that is the story of the Twin Cities Minneapolis St. Paul and this was told to me by somebody from a, a uh, somebody from Milwaukee <laughs> and somebody on the city council Minneapolis and St. Paul were a pit they were the Detroit they were like Detroit they were hollowed out and uh, somebody on the city council said, you know what we need, according to my friend from Milwaukee, is we need more gays. We need more, we need more gay couples or, or individuals to set up boutiques, to set up restaurants, and we are going to simply go to Milwaukee and raid them of all of their gays and tell them that they're welcome, not just welcome here, they're desired here. They don't care about the crappy school system because they don't have kids. And we're going to give them, we're going to point out our great real estate values. And we're, and we're, we are just going to become a magnet for gays to come up shop, whether it's antique stores or hair salons or, or <laughs> decorate or whatever. And they, went out to Milwaukee and they, 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 they went to all the gay guys shops and they say, we want you in Minneapolis, St. Paul. We're going to pave your way here. Come on in. And you know what? They felt so loved and it was so weird to feel desired and recruited that they came to Minneapolis, St. Paul in droves. They filled up all those empty storefronts. They created thriving little businesses. And then this created a virtuous circle. And now Minneapolis, St. Paul, are little treasure jewels economically as well as culturally and in any, any other way. Just to give you one example of human capitalism at work. <laughs> well, well I, I've seen it work elsewhere. My, 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 my in-laws lived up in Kenny Bunkport, and if you drive down the coast of Maine, you run across a town called Agonquit. I think it's Agonquit. And it's basically, the only people who live there are gay, and it's the most gorgeous town on the coast and the, the best restaurants, the best boutiques, 
and I don't know if it was on purpose, but you certainly want to spend a lot of time there because it's a, you know, it's a great place. <laughs> so, so this strategy is working. Uh, for what you said, in what town are they, or should we go visit next time we're out there? Minneapolis, St. Paul, or Algonquin? <laughs> John, you've, in, your, in your end of work, you've written about a lot of different industries and different, different uh, ways you know, people create their own jobs. How do you see this translating into your, your ideas from uh, the end of work? Well, I, I think it's, it's a very clear correlation. Where the talented people go, uh, that's where the investment goes. And where the investment goes, that's where the companies and jobs are created. And that frees people up to be very creative in the way they do things. And so I'm so glad that, Bra that, that Ralph brought up Minneapolis. It's another classic example. Again, none of us here are defending high rates of taxation. But Minneapolis is a booming city. To visit it is to be blown away by all the people there, but all the talented people there, all the people that I know from growing up and from college who moved back to Minneapolis after college, that's where they wanted to make a life. And so they're there despite the taxation. And so when you have that, the range of ways in which people can, can earn a living is great. But we have to understand this. We can be for high taxes, but that's not enough because people will bring up California and New York. No, we can be for low we taxes. Be, we will be low taxes. We will be for high taxes. Yes. Yeah, we're going <laughs> to. Right. Yeah, we are for lower ta tax rates. <laughs> but you were absolutely right, John. This is, we, we've, we've, uh, have either one of you heard of something called a cargo cult? Cargo yeah. cult. Yeah, I think that was. Again, this is probably something you wrote and I read, Ralph, but I think it has something to do about an island in the South Pacific that was abandoned after World War II. A series of islands in the South Pacific. Yeah. We built a bunch of military bases on a bunch of South Pacific islands and the, the, the air, they, they, were air, they were Air Force or Army Air Force bases and they would provide canned goods and knives and forks and all kinds of high-tech stuff to the natives. And then after the war, we abandoned them because we didn't need them anymore. Apparently, for some reason, we need 800 military bases around the world today, but the, don't get me started on that. Uh, and- The uh, answer is we don't. But the, anyway. the, the natives of the South Pacific Islands, they created effigies of airplanes they created on the landing strips. And they went through rituals of the people uh, um, doing flags, uh, takeoff flags and whatever, in hopes of, of bringing back these, these beneficent uh, abundance from nowhere. And uh, by the way, there's a, uh, this, these cargo cults still exist on a few of these places. There's the John Frum cult, which is still active. But the point is, people saw the, out, the outcome, but they didn't understand the mechanism. And so my view is that the Republican Party has become one grand cargo cult that is worshiping at the abundance that they created with their policy successes back in the 80s and 90s. But frankly, the economy has been in the pit since the year 2000. It's been growing at one half of, 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 uh, trend, of gold standard trend rates for 20 years, which compound, which, you know, one and a half percent a year instead of three you're not you're not talking gdp you're talking about gdp yeah. growth adjusted for gold prices not for inflation no i'm talking about actual gdp real gdp growth okay all right the gold standard is north of three percent it's since uh the year 2000 
we had a, a good run when, when, uh, when Volcker stabilized the dollar and when Greenspan emulated the gold standard, as he admitted that he did, and then uh, uh, in an interview two years ago. Uh, and then he went off the wagon, fell off the wagon, and we got the boom and bust cycle, and it's been hell, it's been stagnation, it's been hell or purgatory ever since. John? Uh, yeah, look, there's no doubt about it. Um, now, I, I tend to think we overrate the Fed's role. So, here over 20 years. As I see it, we presidents get the dollar they want. I don't think Greenspan changed in two right. years. And I think the change was that George W. Bush was elected, and he decided to re retreat from uh, the Reagan-Clinton uh, strong dollar policy that had correlated so much with growth. But the fact that Ralph brings this up is, is crucially important, and it's a reminder, once again, to our side, we're, we're very much for low tax rates. But low tax, ta big tax cuts do not work, as the Bush administration proved, if you're devaluing the dollar alongside it, because investment is what drives economic growth. I don't think Jeff Bezos really cares that much about tax rates, but he certainly cares about, he's too busy innovating, but he cannot innovate without investment. And so when you're devaluing the dollar, you're putting a bullseye on the very investors who author all the economic growth. So it's no surprise that in a 18 year span in which the dollar is quite a bit weaker than it was in the eighties and nineties, why are we surprised there's no very little economic growth relative to the past? And it just, it speaks once again, we all love tax cuts, but there are but one thing, and I would say dollar policy is more important. And then after that, let's go back to the talent thing. Well, clusters uh, on the coast, and that's where the growth is. The top five most valuable companies in the world are, are three of them are in, are in California. Is this a state in decline? I think not. Well, that part of it certainly isn't. Well, let's, let's zero in on this, this case of the cargo cult Republicans and what case they do made, make. I think we need to make a moral case for capitalism. And as I said at the outset, capitalism gets confused with a lot of other things. And we talk about monetary policy, gold standard, tax rates, things like that. Most people's eyes glaze over. They don't glaze over when you talk about doing things and make people's lives better and how people can make their own lives better. And we're talking about talent trumping taxes, and I agree. Let's say talent topping but, taxes until we come up with a better word. What topping, topping taxes, jump, jump. yeah, tops taxes, tops works. Uh, but we're not really, we talk about investment, John, and the, the, what, what conjures up is, is building new factories and buying new computers or investing in software, or whatever apps, whatever to build out your, your, your business. We don't think, talk in terms of investing in people. And can you, we talk about talent, but can you, can you take our investment dollars and talk about investing in people? Can you create talent? that would bring a lot of people into the economy. Right now we're back in, this is fall of 2018, we're back to a situation where there are more jobs available to be filled, that, but you can't find people to fill them because they lack the talent and the training to take those jobs. And so we've got a mismatch and, you know, I don't- Oh, I don't Bill, that is, so, that, is so, that is so wrong. They don't lack the talent, they, they, may, they lack the motivation. Okay, I have people who work in the inner city with uh, gang members who tend to be very entrepreneurial, but they we have put up so many barriers to their success, whether it's uh, okay. licenses, licensing, regulatory, <clears throat> or whatever, 
that we that the that the uh, elders, the great white fathers, have forced them into a life of crime. There is an enormous unexploited talent there, and I can prove this because they've developed systems to incentivize, to uh, to motivate some of these gang members to turn to turn straight, to turn to constructive activity. And under the right policy conditions, they do, and they become enormously productive members of society rather than agents of crime and, and destruction. Well, I, I think, of, okay, I, I stand corrected on the term, perhaps, but you're really talking about the value system, the, the, the desire to participate in the economy, and that's, a, you know, that's something that has not been hip in the inner city and you're considered no, white. No, it's backwards. We have, we have destroyed the, the incentive system. In, and by the way, this was done intentionally. And who's, who's the we? Up until the 1930s, uh, high school was not mandatory. You didn't go to, you didn't have yeah. a truant officer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They made high school mandatory in order to shrink the labor pool and keep young men without dependence from undercutting the, uh, the wages of heads of households. And that was done intentionally and specifically to shrink the labor pool. We still have this policy in place and in the inner cities, it is crippling to the ability of young men and young women to find productive work beginning unskilled, working up to semi-skilled, working up to skilled. And by crippling the, the, the organic process, okay, we have created these hell holes. Well, and they, they look like it too. I had a couple of businesses in the, in the, in the education field and you go into high schools in these areas and it's hard to, it's easy to confuse them with prisons. I mean, it's, it's really, I mean, I think even the suburban high schools are a lot like prisons in a way because you waste so much time in there, you could be doing something interesting instead of But the difference about suburban high schools is the parents can subsidize the kids. They can buy them good clothes, they can give them an allowance, they can give them a car, and the parents in the inner city do not have those resources to provide those subsidies, and yeah. therefore you get, in the suburbs you get purgatory, in the inner city you get hell. And we created, <laughs> we created this. This is not natural. Yeah. John. Yeah, I would disagree with, I don't like this notion that we created something. Uh, let's not forget that we're a magnet for the world's poorest. People still risk their lives not knowing the language to get here um, and figure out a way to make it. Um, if you're already in the United States, you are legal to go to all 50 states uh, you're only a bus ride away or frequently less away from prosperity. When you consider what the people who preceded us had to go through to find prosperity, um, I don't feel sorry for anyone who's here. And I reject the notion, I think government policies are awful, but I reject the notion that they cause poverty. I think bad decisions cause poverty. But I do think one of the ways in which these things could be fixed is that we've got to stop trying to engineer good outcomes. Uh, this notion, well, we're going to bring back manufacturing jobs. We're going to bring back these jobs. Well, now think about that. Where do the, do the talented, do they want to work in factories? Do they want to work in cities defined by factories? No, they reject them. The talented want to go to cities like New York and San Francisco where there is no manufacturing. 
And so in trying to bring back the past, we're actually holding or we're attempting to hold certain parts of the country in place in ways that the talented will continue to, to leave. The, the better way to do it would be to allow these cities to hit rock bottom and the talented potentially see, as they're seeing in Detroit right now, as I've heard they're seeing in, in Baltimore, office space is cheap. We can, we can get ramped up at a relatively low cost. That's what will improve outcomes and that's what will improve job opportunities. I think the focus on jobs is usually the problem. The, the, the idea would always be freedom. The talent, the talented will, will take it from there. Um, that you, you said it, it, it's not a function of policy. It's a function of bad decisions. But if you got a government policy that says you got to stay in high school or they're going to arrest you, which is what they're doing in some cities now because kids are, are bailing out of there of every chance they get. Uh, it's not exactly your own decision. It's something else going on there that uh, there, there's an awful lot of this that's been inflicted on people and it's very hard for people to make, uh, make changes. And I think also there's a, you know, what is it? Uh, mobility, geographic mobility in the United States is at an all time low now. And for some reason people feel like they're, they're trapped in, uh, in some place. I don't think they should be, but nevertheless, that's what they believe and that's how they act. I mean, what, what, Bill, uh, yeah. this, is, this is John Tamney, comma, mystic. This is John <laughs> Tamney doing Calvinism on DMT. Okay. okay. He's a genius, but we have to remember when we're dealing with geniuses that there's a thin line between genius and madness. And occasionally, even the great John Tamney steps over that line. The main thing is Tamney's axiom, talent tops taxes, is absolutely crucial. It is the Copernican insight of heliocentricity for the future if we are only have the wit to see it, grab it, exalt it, and somehow manage to prevent, to avoid being burned at the stake by the, uh, Republic, by the Republican curia for committing heresy by embracing the truth. Well, John, uh, Ralph, uh, I want to come back to this notion of what we've got to do to help Save Republicans. Yeah, John's got to defend. You got to you got to let John defend himself. Hi, John. I, hideous attack I just launched. Well, I was, no, Ralph, you don't. Was that an attack? <laughs> Ralph Benko doesn't live in Aliquippa, PA. He doesn't live in live in Flint either. Sorry, but you don't, and you know why you don't. Are you saying that these people are somehow subhuman that they can't do? Not at all. Anyone else would do and say very little opportunity in Flint, but there's tons in Grand Rapids. Very little opportunity in Aliquippa, but there's lots in Pittsburgh. Not at all, John. This is when you go into Dr. Panglass mode, which is to say all is for the best in this best of all possible worlds. This is not an indictment. Mine is not an indictment of the, of the people who are, remain behind in Aliquippa, Pennsylvania. Please look up Orange City, Iowa, and you'll see how the, the small cities and small towns can absolutely get it right, which you already know, but it's useful to actually see it embodied in an actual thriving small city, Orange City, Iowa. It was written up in the New Yorker and it's just, it's awesome. It's human capitalism at scale. Let's stay with human capitalism. Ralph, talk about, you've written about Gary Becker and where I'm trying to push this a little bit is towards the idea of investing in people, which I think would be very politically popular and also would be great economics. Uh, 
and I said that capitalism is not about things, it's about people. And Gary's theory of human capitalism is, is really, I guess he was one of the early people to think about it that way. He wrote the book, Human Capital, uh, for which he won a Nobel. But I think you should really be addressing this to Tamney because he's in, in he's, he's expert. John, you got to answer for yourself. Better, better <laughs> economist than I am. I'm not an economist. Tam, Tamney gets the, the the mechanics of this stuff. Please elucidate. <laughs> so you, why don't you address the question to John because he's been, he's more likely to come up with a useful answer than I am, and how to invest in people. Well. Uh, uh, First off, I'm not an economist. Don't insult me like that, Ralph. <laughs> I think way too clearly to be an economist. Um, but uh, in terms of investment in people, I think we're already seeing it. Uh, there's, it's not something that can be decreed. The reality is the U.S. is a magnet for global investment. And why is it? Because we've got the most awesome people on earth. We've been a magnet for the world's strivers for centuries. And it's no surprise that the, that the wealth comes this way. And so we're already seeing the investment. It's not something a, a politician can decree as much as a politician can say, okay, how do we make it as painless as possible? for investment to flow into the United States. And so I think we know the answers. Well, you don't want to have a dollar that's constantly being devalued because that would be a deterrent to investment. You don't want to, why would you tax capital gains um, that take place in this country? That is a penalty placed on investment success. There's no companies, no jobs without the investment. Um, why on earth would you tax corporations? Um, that's just taxing the investors who put the money to work. Isn't it funny? We don't tax municipal bonds that fund government waste, yet if you have the temerity to invest in people in the private sector, you're, you're whacked with, with a tax rate if you, if you actually succeed. And so it's got to be, we don't have to worry about the investment. It's going to find the talent here. What we have to say is, is there anything we can do to make it even more exciting for money to flow here? And uh, I, don't, I don't seem to be communicating with you guys. We're talking about investment dollars and it's going into the typical way to, to build a new facility here to make some. No, no, no. Don't, don't indict me. Okay. Okay. Uh, well, 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 we should treat, we should treat. Let me, let me bring, let me bring something else up. The world bank just came out with a study. It's, it's, it's absolutely impenetrable, but if you spend some time with it, you can get some useful things out of it. It's called measuring human capital, a systematic analysis of 195 countries and territories from 1990 to 2016. And it gets into things like what are, are people healthy? Are they living along levels of education, skills, et cetera. And it, points up that the United States was number seven in terms of their ranking, and it's, we've fallen to 27 from 1990 to 2016. And they also make the point here that, and I'm not sure how to think about this, only 1% of the World Bank uh, monies granted are for health and only 1.9% for education. The rest of it's going for dams and roads and infrastructure projects like that. And these people are making the case that the World Bank ought to be investing more in people directly and less in, uh, in uh, what we think of as investment capital. I'm interested in what you think about that. I'm interested in telling you what I think uh, 
Bill, but I'm about out of electrons, so I'm going to have to disappear from the screen for 30 seconds while I plug this baby in. Over to you, Tammy. That's the best. <laughs> That's the best dodge I've heard yet. <laughs> John? So investing in people, I think implicit in the World Bank's uh, viewpoint is that there should be more investment in education. And my view is that's nonsense. Um, China didn't become a rising country because its, class, its people were educated. In fact, they were the most uneducated people on earth. Freedom is what frees them up to prosper. Uh, South Korea used to be one of the most illiterate countries on earth. Those illiterate people built it into a global power. Education is an effect of prosperity. It's not a driver of it. And so I think it once again goes back to um, if you want to see investment in people, you've got to, you just try to remove all barriers, all costs associated with investing in talented people getting it to the vital few. So I wouldn't want the World Bank to do this. World Bank directs money without the, the possibility of failure, which means it misallocates precious resources. So it's got to come from the private sector. It cannot come from government. If there are one other thing, let's always remember, it's the vital few. It's the rare people who drive prosperity. If I wanted to make the U.S. even more of a magnet for talent, I'd be of the mind to making it even quite a bit easier for the world's talented to come here without harassment. Um, I would want to open up the borders a bit more. I know that's a touchy subject, but we are an, a magnet for talent because we have the world's best people. We should do more of it. And I would like to uh, say something that I hope uh, is complimentary to that, although John will find it, find it this. And that is you are, the tax code allows you to deduct uh, either expense or depreciate uh, or accelerated depreciate uh, investments in fixed plan and equipment. But you are not allowed to deduct, uh, for instance, your, uh, your, uh, your, your college tuition expenses, which are an investment in your intellectual capital. And so there is a um, prejudice and a privilege here the, the way the tax code is written, uh, one of my economist friends told me many years ago, it might have even been true, even though he was an economist, that uh, while two-thirds of the national income accounts go to labor and one-third go to capital, three-quarters of the taxes go to uh, fall on labor and only one-quarter on capital, thereby prejudicing labor and privileging capital. And so there are these in, invisible and I would say insidious uh, preferences built in toward fixed capital and uh, to the advantage of fixed capital, but to the detriment of human capital. And we need, following uh, Tammy's axiom, we need to take a hard, comprehensive, and overall look as to all of the different policies, which is in, in accord with John's general, general approach, to look for the invisible barriers that either inhibit or prohibit prohibit it in the sense of uh, mandatory uh, high school, inhibit in the sense of uh, giving better tax treatment to uh, fixed capital, better deductions and so forth than to intellectual capital, uh, and uh, to level the playing field at a minimum so that human capitalism is not prejudiced to fixed capitalism. To, uh, to old 
old hardwired capitalism. So I, I quite agree, Ralph. The whole tax code is built. I mean, for, you could even take it to where health club memberships should be deductible. Anything you do to take care of yourself, to make yourself healthy, and rather than a patient, would be something that would be investing in. Yeah, Becker said exactly that and won a Nobel Prize for it. So you're in good company. Who, who did that? Gary Becker. Yeah, I like, okay. As, what yeah. was it from the Dick Tracy movie where Al Pacino's character playing one of the bad guys said, as, Socrates, as, as I say, and Socrates agrees with me? <laughs> <laughs> well said. So, as I say, and Gary Becker agrees with me, God bless you, Gary. Uh, we're, winding, we're winding up our time to talk about this. I want to have you guys back on to talk about this some more. Uh, I think the takeaway I have is that there is a, uh, uh, we, we oversimplify things to think about taxes and, and rates and things like that. And we need to look at uh, freeing people up to be mobile. We need to attract talent to the United States. We're doing that. We need to reduce those barriers. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's essentially about people and the Republicans, if they want to be uh, a more popular party than they are, need to understand that and make that part of their uh, rhetoric. So, John, thanks for joining. And, Ralph, thanks for joining. You guys are great. I love talking with you. And so uh, hope you all join me next time. And we'll talk about uh, some more interesting things like uh, talent topping taxes. Ralph? Tammy's axiom, don't forget. Right. It's the new Laffer curve. You heard it here first. Oh, and I once again, you, everybody's got to go buy John's book uh, uh, on uh, the end of work. Find it on on Amazon, and I, I'd all encourage you also to go to Ralph's uh, website, RalphBinko.com, to learn about what Ralph's doing to help people uh, be more successful in promoting their business using the web and social media. Uh, so, thanks, guys. Talk soon. Thanks for listening. Want more? Be sure to subscribe at thebillwaltonshow.com or on iTunes. Amazon is hiring near you. Earn a competitive wage and start as soon as seven days. No resume or experience required. Health and safety are a top priority with all of our roles and sites. Amazon is taking precautions in our buildings to keep people healthy. Go to Amazon.com slash apply. That's Amazon.com slash apply. Amazon is an equal opportunity employer.